This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology favorite, crisis communications consultant, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Susan, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's so great to be here today. Thanks. Also returning to Politicology for her weekly roundup debut is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. Katherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University and is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's also the author of Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels, which was the centerpiece of our really fantastic conversation back on March 10th. And the link to that episode, in case you missed it, is in today's show notes. Catherine, so great to have you back. Welcome to the Roundup. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for this invitation. On this week's show, the fight over the effort to find the facts and establish a shared truth about what happened on January 6th, and the unhinged defense claimed by an attorney for the QAnon shaman. The New York Attorney General and Manhattan DA turning up the heat on investigations into the Trump Organization. How the growing confusion over the CDC's newest guidance is reflective of very different pandemic experiences and what cultural psychology can tell us about the way we've responded to COVID. Also, in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll look at the New York City Pride organizers' decision to exclude the NYPD from the city's annual Pride Parade through at least 2025. Let's dig in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So on Wednesday, a bipartisan bill to create a 9-11-style commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol passed the House 252 to 175, with 35 Republicans joining Democrats. Yet it is entirely uncertain if or how the bill is going to pass through the Senate, where 10 Republican votes are needed, as Republican leadership in both chambers has fought tooth and nail to prevent the commission from being created in the first place. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and his number two, Steve Scalise, have both voiced their opposition, as has their Senate counterpart, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Republicans, including McCarthy, claim their opposition is because the focus on the legislation is too narrow, and they've tried to tack on several other instances of political violence from the last several years to the commission's mandate. But the real reason seems rather obvious, which is that Republicans, especially McCarthy himself, don't want to be subpoenaed and forced to testify about their experience on January 6th. 
especially regarding their conversations with the president. So Susan, if Republicans are successful in blocking the creation of this commission, what are they robbing us of? And maybe zoom out first and, and set the table here. Why do we need this commission in the first place? Why is it so important? Well, I think you use the perfect word, a shared truth. That's why we need it. We need our country to come together, and we can only do that if we all see the facts and can agree upon them. And I think if the, if the facts come forward, it's going to embarrass a lot of people, especially Kevin McCarthy. So that's one of the reasons why he's, he's trying to, to kill this. And my guess is he also received quite a few calls from his pal, you know, the former guy. The thing that I don't understand about this really, really bad strategy is that the House is under the Democrat control. They can still have hearings. They still have subpoena power. These things are going to come out. Now, and, and the worst part is, is that what um, some concern was is that the report would come out next year, that it would spill into the following year, into an election year. By doing this, by stopping the report from happening, the Republicans have all but ensured that this mm. is going to go into 2022 and most likely become a campaign issue. You know, when during the impeachment process, there was a very narrow scope and very and a very narrow amount of information that was provided for a whole host of reasons. That will not be the case if this if um Congress investigates and it hmm. goes to several different committees. They're going to dig, they're going to dig everywhere and everything will be presented. I hope that Nancy Pelosi actually puts forth a commission that is for Democrats and for Republicans matching what's been discussed and, and really lend some credibility because while they can move forward, the whole point of this, why do we want to have a January 6th commission? just like we wanted one on September 11th, mm -hmm. is to find out what happened and to prevent it from happening again. Mm -hmm. We learned something very important uh, during the transition between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It came out in the 9-11 Commission report. The lack of a transition definitely affected the country's preparedness in 2000 to 2001 in preparing the current administration, the Bush administration, in being the best prepared that they could for a case like September 11th. The commission that they're proposing now is going to have findings that will help us as a country. So it's all going to come out. So Amy Walter, the national editor of the Cook Political Report, tweeted that she found the list of 35 Republicans tough to categorize that it cuts across generation, types of congressional district, and past support or opposition to impeachment. What do you make of that? I mean, how are you thinking about this list of the 35 Republicans who essentially, you know, uh, bucked House GOP leadership in a whipped vote, right? They were, these votes were, these Correct. votes were whipped and yes. um, it wasn't one of those vote your conscience, vote your conscience team, right? What do you make of the 35 defectors? Well, I think they were 35 people who voted their conscience. Hmm. I mean, there was there the only connective tissue through all of it were members that decided that they were going to put country above party. That's what unites them. That's the thread that you see. And that was they felt that that was their responsibility. So they did the right thing. 
The only problem is politically is that then they get pointed to over and over again, which potentially hurts them if they have yeah. to face a primary. Yes. <laughs> Catherine, uh, I'm interested in what you think about these 35 Republicans taking the risk and whether or not there's a difference. How how could that impact whether they or any other members of Congress choose to act in tough situations? But I also want to talk about gaslighting because we've seen some really egregious displays of this lately, um, attempts at rewriting what happened, including it was Georgia Representative Andrew Clyde's recent characterization of the attack as a normal tur tourist visit. I put that in air quotes. And so actually, why don't we lean into that for a moment? As a psychological concept, can you help us understand how gaslighting works when a leadership figure declares publicly what you saw and what you heard didn't really happen how effective is that? And maybe more importantly, why is it so effective? So I'll say a couple things about that. First of all, I'm going to hearken back to our earlier conversation um, in which I don't call them defectors. I call them moral rebels. Right. Right. Because as Susan said, again, quoting Susan, these 35 people chose country over party. Yeah. And that's what's really hard psychologically. It's really hard to do that when the former guy who, by all accounts, seems to continue to have a lot of sway for a little bit of reasons that are unknown. But nonetheless, um, for those 35 to take a risk and and do what is clearly the right thing, right, to the extent that we're going to say searching for truth, you know, is the right thing. And they will very likely, again, this will be different depending on their district, but many of them will, in fact, face primary challenges, right? I mean, you can kind of go through the list yeah. and think about where, you know, starting with Wyoming, right? <laughs> like starting yeah. with what's going to happen in terms of primary consequences. And so I do think that we should acknowledge them as, again, a number of, a, a very small boat, a very small boat of Republican leaders, Mitt Romney, of course, I think being the most salient who continue to do the right thing no matter what. And to me, the gaslighting example dovetails with, with what Susan just said in terms of why don't we want the truth? Yeah. So when 9-11 happened, no one was like, you know what? That was really bad right. and let's not revisit it, right. right? Let's, you know, it was really bad. We lost a lot of people. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on. Move let's on. just, yeah, right. let's just let's, put let's that behind on. us. Yeah. Put it behind us. Let's, you know, let's build a new tower and, mm -hmm. you know, with, you know, set up a memorial and let's not understand, right? I mean, that, but right. that's what's happening. Yeah. And so if we had said, you know, it's really sad, but we don't want to focus on the lives that were lost. We <laughs> just want to move forward and, you know, families should be left to grieve on their own or whatever. That would have seemed insane because part of understanding what happened is extraordinarily important in terms of being able to prevent it from happening again. So understanding the psychology of what actually happened as opposed to what we might pretend happened, uh, a very normal tourist group seeing the Capitol, you know, threatening to hang the vice president, mm -hmm. you know, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's essential. And that's, to me, frankly, what's so scary about the time we are in. So let's talk about as a, almost as a as a uh, chaser to what's going on in leadership uh, at Congress. Let's talk about the QAnon shaman for a minute, because well, fair warning to our listeners, I'm about to quote someone who used extremely hurtful and hateful language, and I want to be clear about why I'm sharing this. It's because it illustrates a lot of the harmful ways people in this country think and speak about mental health. It also illustrates the 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 lengths to which this particular attorney is 
it has to go in order to uh, in order there is basically there is no defense for what happened on January sixth, and this in his characterization is evidence of that. Um, but if you're sensitive to hearing objectively offensive language about mental health and disabled people, then you may want to skip this section. Okay, in an interview with Talking Points Memo. The defense attorney for Jacob Chansley, who is also known as the QAnon shaman, you might remember uh, him as the guy wearing face paint and horns during the Capitol attack, attempted to inartfully tie his client's mental health to the effects of President Trump's propaganda, and he used the word propaganda, regarding the election by saying, quote, a lot of these defendants, and I'm going to use this colloquial term, perhaps disrespectfully, but they're all fucking short bus people. These are people with brain damage. They're fucking R-word. They're on the goddamn spectrum, end quote. This is, this is the attorney for the QAnon shaman. So Catherine, not guilty by reason of insanity, is a legitimate legal plea, but many people have mental illnesses or disabilities, and many people are on the autism spectrum, and they're not domestic terrorists. And this whole, you know, my client rides the short bus is not a defense. So... What is, for, I guess, what does this show about the misguided ways um, people in this country think about mental health? How does this demonstrate our overall lack of understanding uh, that a defense attorney in a case as high profile as the insurrection would say something like this to a, to a reporter, no less? How, like, how do you think about that? So to me, of course, that was a horrific horrific across multiple different levels. And I say that as someone who who is married to an attorney who also was like, not such an effective strategy. <laughs> wow. I mean, also, so, yeah. so again, I'm, I'm not on to offer the yeah. legal commentary, I assume, sure, sure. but, but it, but it seems like a super misguided legal strategy, but, but I do think it really speaks to a couple of things. One, the tremendous stigma that remains about psychological disorders and mental illness is of course rampant as a as a college professor, I'm particularly mindful there was a study that was released very recently showing that in the last year, 80% of college students described struggling with mental health issues. And I, again, many of those, wow. of, of course, are brought on by the COVID yeah. situation in which people are feeling more anxious and more depressed and, and lonely, you know, and so on. But the other thing that really struck me is that the use of the word, the R word, mm -hmm. and that is something that, again, I may be older than you all. Um, I'm in my 50s, yeah. but that is something that was a very, very normal word that I heard growing up. That mm -hmm. was certainly something that was heard. In the fall of last year, so in, in 2020, I had students in my social psychology class do a final project using psychological theory to change the world in some way. Mm. And I remember specifically a student who was on the lacrosse team, white a male student on the lacrosse team here did his project on stopping the use of the R word. Mm. And it just struck me as, wow, this is something that has really, really changed in terms of what is socially acceptable and what is normative. And the fact that that attorney didn't get that was so far out of sort of the realm of what is and is not acceptable was, was stunning yeah. in a, in a really negative way. So, Susan, I am struck by the contrast between basically House Republicans' line on January 6th and the formation of this of the commission to investigate the insurrection and the the QAnon shaman who's become this symbolic figure of the insurrection who doesn't have a defense, who says that it was Donald Trump's messaging, his rhetoric, his propaganda that that 
caused this, that led him to do what he did. And his defense attorney basically says he's mentally ill. That's his defense. There is no substantive argument. And yet um, Republicans basically don't want to open their eyes to that. Well, that was following up on the I watch Fox News. So therefore, I went to the insurrection. I mean, that was an excuse just a few weeks ago. You know, I also think just to go back to the use of the R word for a minute, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe it's because I expect the worst, but I think that lawyer used that language very intentionally to be the kind of person that Donald Trump is, no excuse, no political correctness. It was, it, it, it just matches everything else that is happening within, within when you look at QAnon and the relationship with Donald Trump and the relationship with Republicans. It's what Marjorie Taylor Greene says all the time. I'm not politically correct. And she goes out there and she supports these crazy ideas. But it boils down to politicians, when we talk about like where they're going and how they look at things, they are so boiled down to if they're going to get reelected. That's it. And they keep trying to read the tea leaves. And if it, they don't care about if they're going to get reelected in 2024. Yeah. They can, and what it looks like in 2024, most of them probably don't think they're running for president, although they daydream about it. They're thinking about what do I do in 18 months? This is what I've got. These are the, this is what's given to me. This is what's out there. It's such a far bigger change than when I started out in this business 30 years ago, where we used to actually vote for people and work for people in politics because of their policies. But right now in the Republican Party, it doesn't matter what your policies are. It, it matters what your personality is. And that's what we're seeing. And that's, I think, also another thing that kind of connects the dots through everything that's happening, whether it's whether they, whether or not members of Congress are silent or, you know, they they support some of their colleagues who have gone off the rails and or they support colleagues that have been um, under investigation for for pedophilia. I mean, like this is like this is where we are right now. This is all personality politics. It's all performative. And it is it is something that is very dangerous to our political system. And I will also warn, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen on the other side of the aisle. I'm not saying these issues, but look out for perform. I'll, I'll call it performance politics, but um, it, it's out there. And right now it's the way that people are connecting. So speaking of Donald Trump's crimes, CNN broke some news this week regarding the ongoing investigations into the Trump family businesses that we've been keeping you apprised of. A spokesperson for New York Attorney General Letitia James told CNN, quote, we have informed the Trump organization that our investigation into the organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump organization in a criminal capacity, along with the Manhattan DA, end quote. So there are two big pieces of new information here that, uh, that I want to look closely at. So first uh, and foremost, obviously, is that the investigations have expanded in scope to include possible criminal activity. But also, we now know that the New York AG and the Manhattan DA are working together and sharing information. Their offices are collaborating. CNN also reported, based on anonymous sources, that uh, that James's office 
has been looking into the taxes of the Trump Organization CFO, uh, Alan Weisselberg, for, for, for months. And uh, remember that they now have Trump's tax returns because he lost that fight uh, to keep them secret in the Supreme Court uh, unanimously, 9-0 against Trump back in February. So Susan, in a post uh, on his so-called communications platform, which is really just a, a blog, so that, so that everybody's clear. It's a it's a blog on on the on the post post presidency Trump blog. Uh, uh, he tied he tried to draw a line from, uh, and and I'll use his own words here for um, for fun. The fake Russia 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 hoax. The two-year, $48 million, no-collusion Mueller witch hunt, impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, and others, uh, end quote, to the scrutiny he's facing now in New York. But he doesn't have the protection and discretion that comes from being in the White House anymore, as he did during the previous four years. And this, you know, uh, from a from a practitioner standpoint, it seems like uh, predictable and probably effective spin, effective in that the base will believe him, right? And that he'll raise lots of money uh, doing this. Um, but does this have the potential uh, to hurt Republicans or are the firewalls of the alternative reality that they have uh, constructed effectively impenetrable by unflattering facts? Well, I mean, first, also, one other thing besides not having the AG's office and the whole federal government behind him, he now has to pay his lawyers. I just like to highlight that's something he doesn't <laughs> like to do. He really doesn't like paying his lawyers, so that's an issue. Um, <laughs> matter of fact, I'm sure anyone he's hired or got their retainer up front. Um, you could just ask Rudy Giuliani about that, by yeah. the way. So, oh, yeah. um, but, but seriously... The, Here's the thing. I mean, it seems like it's big news that the AG has expanded her or her investigation into the criminal. To me, it doesn't surprise me because it was the Manhattan DA. That's not even like the New York City DA. Mm. That's one of five boroughs mm. of the city of New York. So the, it, it would make sense since he has business in other places that the investigation would expand and it makes most sense for the AG who has a lot of leeway to invest for investigation to join forces because the Manhattan DA is the one who has the most other information and mm. we're not aware of any other facts being or investigations happening in, in New York counties, counties of New York versus the um, FBI and, and Southern district. Right. Right. So I, I, I I, I think about this a lot. Like, let's just say they say they find Donald Trump like guilty as sin. Yeah, right. Right. Like, here it is. Yeah. He stole this. However, whatever he's guilty of. He, yes. Let's just say that's it. Unless it was stealing money from like orphans and widows and a real direct line proving that he did. Yeah. I, I don't think it matters. I think what the bigger conversation, there's two conversations and I'd love to get Catherine's yeah, take on uh, Yeah. Is one, um, people, we keep bringing it up. I'm not sure why, I understand why it's news, but I wonder what the effect is if constantly having Donald Trump's name out there, we're not even like, there's not even an indictment. So it's gonna, it's gonna keep going. It's still gonna, it's gonna snowball. And I think us as a country, like we talk about moving on, how do you move on from that? And then there's the other thing which I struggle with is how do you what 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 is the punishment for any such crimes that are found? Yeah, because 
everyone believes, as I do, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. Like this is our justice system. It has to apply evenly to everybody. But imagine putting even an ankle bracelet on Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. The bigger thing I think that he's actually worried about is not so much going away, is that it will he's got money due come next year on a lot of loans. He's got, you know, he could be wiped out by this kind of settlement. So I just think I'm more concerned about where it puts us mentally than the political effect, because I don't think it'll have a lot. Yeah. Catherine, this is, I mean, there are a number of questions you could choose from to, 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 to pull on here, but let's say they find the worst out about Donald Trump. It, I think we all know that's probably not going to matter to the base. It's probably not going to matter to most of the party outside the base. Um, not only because uh, they, you know, he's going to be successful in spinning this as another witch hunt. Does keeping him in the news in that way help uh, the, the 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 help him help him retain control of the party, or um, or or is there any chance that, that reflect this reflects poorly on Republican leadership? Uh, and and just in general, when you come across these headlines, when you're reading the news, how do you think about what's happening? Uh, you know, the the I'm I don't want to misuse the term pluralistic ignorance, but it feels like that's what's happening here within the Republican Party. How do you think about this process vis-a-vis Trump's prosecution, holding him accountable, and his ironclad grip on the party? Well, so I have been wrong probably for, I don't know, five, six years about when the Republican Party was not going to support this guy. <laughs> right? I'm, Susan's I'm raising not, her hand. I'm not pointing at you, Susan, but, um, but, but, but I could. And, you know, I, I mean, so, so certainly I have been stunned by what he can do and, and continue to not lose followers. I think there is a real danger and and I think Susan really identified this well, I think there's a real danger in that there's this constant kind of drib-drab, mm-hmm. right? The New York Times got his tax returns. Oh my gosh, he was a cheat. You know, and and, and we know that. In fact, in a debate with Hillary Clinton, you know, he said, I don't That's pay right. any taxes. That's you know? right. And people are like, new. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. It, it, in fact, that was before he was elected the first That's time, right. right? I mean, that was before he was elected, again, a long time ago. He acknowledged on Nationwide TV, he didn't pay taxes. And so, again, many of his supporters are saying, hey, that's that's great. We all know the amount of money that he raised following his loss to Biden by saying, I need money to pay for audits and, you know, overturning and lawsuits and, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, he's he's made tons and tons of money on this. And it's – I don't think there's anything, frankly, financial – I'm, in fact, less optimistic that if he took money from women and children and and orphans orphans and widows, right, puppies and, you know, whatever, (laughs) that that it would be problematic. Because, again, I think people sort of admire him for his massive wealth. Again, you know, air quote wealth, but, you know, he has a gold plated toilet or, you know, whatever, a lot of different real estate venture. So he seems very admirable in terms of what he's accomplished. Now, on a personal level, we've seen that marital infidelity, not a deal breaker, right? I mean, so so there are lots of different things yep. that have not been a deal breaker. I think the closest thing that we actually get is what's happening with Matt Gates, right? Mm. The Matt Gates thing, I think, now that's not Trump, not trying to say that they're the same or that, you know, that's going to be the next shoe to drop. But I think it would almost have to be something on that level that people really do, I think, 
sex with an underage, again, quoting some uh, political commentators, an underage woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, Trafficking, but, but again, potentially, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Girl, yeah. exactly, right? right? So, <laughs> so, so again, I think when you get into some of that, it actually becomes more problematic. And I think that's kind of where the Epstein thing, you know, of course, yep. um, really yep. uh, sunk. But it's not clear to me that anything related to anything about money is going to ever sink Trump. And I do think there is also a hazard in that I'd rather not know that they're cooperating. I'd rather not know that whatever, you know, when they arrest him in handcuffs, good, yeah, right? I mean, right, I'll, right. I'll look at that I'll wait on for the that TV. image, right. Exactly. But I think the sort of constant drib-drab actually has a, a danger of sort of desensitizing us to, oh yeah, just another Trump mm-hmm. crime story. Mm-hmm. Wait, Ron, do you mind if I ask yeah, please, a question? Yeah, please, please, please. Like you had that, and I think about your students, like, how do they process like they see January 6th and they see that half the country is saying like, not a big deal, just another day visiting, you know, whatever. And no one and, and, the, and the fight of just not wanting to get to truth. And then the idea of Donald Trump, no matter what kind of happens, people are going to be fine with it. Like, where does that put us as a system? I mean, you used the term moral rebels before, but like, where are we as moral citizens? Like, how do you... And I'm especially curious about younger people because they're the ones who really are going to be the next leaders. How do they process that and realize like, and believe in the system? Like we're not showing them the system works. We're showing them just the opposite. So how concerned should we be? I mean, to me, that's, that sort of is the fundamental question because I've lived through lots of elections, um, as as have you all, and I will say that I've been teaching at Amherst since 1997. So we've elected Democrats, we've elected Republicans. You know, it just it goes, you know, at that on and off. You know, kind of switching, you know, alternating, etc. And the mood on my campus, and again, you know, I'm in Western Massachusetts, you know, at a small liberal arts college, but the mood on the day after the 2016 election was the the only experience that I've had teaching that was similar was the day after 9/11 mm. that that to me that was the same sense of absolute you know being in mourning now then we played out to what happened you know 4 years later I would say people were very very anxious and and yet I think there was also this what turns out to be a false assumption right that I think many of us thought okay when he loses yeah he will go and then we're back to a democracy, right? right. Then we are back to right. a democracy. Right. And, you know, we didn't hear a lot from McCain after he lost. We didn't hear a lot from Clinton after she lost. We didn't hear a lot from Romney. I mean, you can just kind of go through. We didn't hear a lot from Gore. We didn't right. hear a lot, whatever. That has not been the case. And so I think there was a sense of collective anxiety through the election. Then, of course, the election results, you know, were not as – clean and quick and acknowledged, frankly, by, you know, McConnell, McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, you, right. you, you, you name them. But again, I think we thought, okay, but there will be an inauguration and it will be over. And the fact that we are now, you know, almost in June yeah. and w- w- what are the numbers? Yeah. 70, 80% of Republicans yeah, don't think it was, isn't it something like that? That's don't think it was now. a legitimate, yeah. right? That's, that to me is terrifying. Yeah. How do your I I I want to I just want to piggyback on Susan's question and just ask another way, but like, what do you hear from students in the classroom and how do they process this system not working or 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 they you know I I don't know what the what the you know student body is like there, but 
is it is it relatively a monolith and everybody's on the same page, or do you hear from students in your classrooms who uh, are basically buying into this idea that well maybe it wasn't legitimate, you know, I, like. So, so I'm, I'm really not. And again, that may well be a reflection of, of where I teach, but I will say certainly my campus is, I would say more focused on things that are seen as having immediate consequences for college students. So things like, frankly, you know, police misconduct and, um, anti-Asian sentiment. I mean, so I think, um, the issue of transgender, uh, rights or lack thereof in, in certain parts of the country, I think is what's getting a lot of attention. And I think mostly that's because, you know, the college student brain, it's really, you know, what is the here and now? What is the here and now right now? And I think, frankly, for those of us that are a bit older, it's thinking like, oh, our whole system what is our system of government? Are we in a democracy? Because I mean, the hallmark of a democracy is somebody loses and acknowledges they lose and and you move on. And the fact that there's not an acknowledgement of the loss, I think is something that is a, is a longer term sort of big picture concept. And that I think by and large, my students at least are sort of focused more on the here and now and the things that are immediately impacting them. That makes sense. It reminds me of something I brought up in a recent conversation that hasn't aired yet, but the you you mentioned big picture concept, long term concept, and I think that's exactly what it is. But we tend to those of us who are talking about you know the 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 cracks in the sh- you know foundation of our democracy and how how you know terrible this is, we tend to use abstract language to describe these big concepts that aren't really immediately tangible, and I. F- Fear that creates um, a little bit of inaccessibility to a lot of people to understand exactly why this is so dangerous. Why it's because without you know a very robust civic education uh, and an, an informed electorate, you you can't appreciate those concepts and you can't appreciate why they're so why we've enshrined them uh, for hundreds of years. So I'm just I'm going to say one you thing. Can, which yeah, is please, that, feel free. To, this is really on a, on a personal note, but I yeah. will say all last year, my husband kept like Googling, you know, countries that are strong democracies. <laughs> and he would be like, Costa Rica, could we go to Costa Rica? And, you know, then we would sort of, you know, Google, do I have to learn Spanish? You know, like how well, how can I pass this citizen test if I'm, you know, not actually fluent in French or, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah. And and to me, at a, at a basic level, I did always assume I assumed good faith. I assumed yeah. that even people I didn't vote for, I assumed good faith. I assumed reasonable people can disagree, but they can do so respectfully. And I certainly assumed that people were focused on the truth. And and that to me has been the most discouraging, actually in not since Trump's election, but really post his, the Biden's inauguration. That, yeah. And that has been, I think, really upsetting. Yeah. Okay. CDC. Last week, they announced that fully vaccinated Americans could safely return to most of their everyday activities without masks and without social distancing. And that has led to a lot of confusion and tension over how to flip the switch on habits we've all been practicing for over a year. So in a weekly roundup episode recently, we discussed the mix of reactions to loosening COVID restrictions uh, and the Emma Green piece in The Atlantic that was titled, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. And in that episode, this is a couple of weeks ago, I offered an observation that the strong social norm we built around mask wearing might perhaps uh, be much stronger than the norm of following science and public health guidelines as they evolve, as they were always going to evolve. Um, And we got a lot of feedback 
And there was a DM I received from a listener on Twitter, which I thought was really insightful. So I wanted to share that with you and then use it as a springboard for the first half of this topic. Uh, and then, and then afterward, Catherine, I have a, I have another separate question for you that dovetails with this topic. We talked about this morning, um, about cultural psychology. So let's do this part first and I'll just read you, uh, what this listener said. So she writes, hi, I'm digging politicology a lot, even though I am far, far to the left of you. I had a couple comments about the discussion around the liberals being too cautious still about COVID. I absolutely agree that people need to relax as numbers get better. Totally with you on that for all the reasons you guys talked about. But I do think a few things were missing from the conversation that would explain the reflex to stay locked down, and they are pretty valid. A lot of the people still wanting masks and precautions are thinking about that six-ish percent for whom the vaccines won't be effective, which colors the conversation with teachers, considering that kids aren't vaccinated. Another piece of the conversation missing is that many of us have been traumatized, not only by fear of the virus, but the fact that our neighbors are gleefully willing to let us and even their own loved ones die. Lockdown measures dictated by government authorities were our only defense against them. So I think it's necessary to remember many of us are going to emotionally emerge from this more slowly than others. Not saying that's a reason for the government to continue lockdown, but maybe a reason for us to give people in that mindset some grace. The other thing is that I think it is a frequent false belief on the part of conservatives that the left gets off on government control. What we believe is that the government should exert power to protect the vulnerable. Right now, there are still a lot of vulnerable. Another thing frequently missing from this conversation is that people with disabilities and immune system issues can't always get the vaccines and rely on herd immunity. Without the protection of government orders, they are facing situations where they will be forced back into work or their kids back into school into unsafe environments if masks and social distancing are gone. So with that as a backdrop, which I thought was just a terrific comment and very additive to the discussion, Susan, what do you think, first of all, what do you think about her view that liberals believe the government should exert power to protect the vulnerable? And what's the flip side of that? Is it fair to say that Republicans aren't as concerned with our more vulnerable communities? And is that why the right has been moving so much faster towards ignoring or lifting restrictions uh, and moving on from COVID with or without vaccines or herd immunity? I'm not sure is it falls so much as a liberal versus conservative when we're talking about these things. Because first of all, we have to look at where things are happening. Being in New York City is different than being in upstate New York, for example. And that's within the same state. And you have difference of opinions and you have, you know, so when the, when the governor says, let's take, everyone can not wear a mask outside, some people in New York City are still a little closer together. It still feels a little different. So people are allowed to watch out for themselves. Now, I think for me, the conservative side is um, I, you should wear a mask if you want to wear a mask. That's my personal choice. There's nothing wrong with wearing a mask. But if I am told that the vaccine is almost 100% in guaranteeing me not to die, mm -hmm. I should be allowed to not wear a mask. Mm -hmm. I am making a choice for myself. You want to protect yourself, Ron, from me because you still think like, I don't know about that vaccination, you know? Fine. Like that's okay. There's also, there was an economic component when we're talking about shutdowns. And I think we're, by the way, we're so far from shutdown now. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. stages of not wearing a yep. mask. Yep. Not we're talking about the residual 
adherence to a exactly. norm that is no longer required. That's what we're talking about. And here's about. where the con- but here's where the interesting part comes in and going back to the shutdown. We keep saying rely on the science. You know, one of the very dangerous things about the Trump administration, and it's continuous, even you could you can put the thread to January 6th, is that they were undermining the scientists yeah. and what was what in, in truth, in yeah. actual truth, they were recommending unproven remedies potentially. They were saying the vaccine, you know, it's good. That's, you know, you can have it. We're working on it. But it's it's about people trusting government again, mm-hmm. which is really what is so important. And where I did, I was on that episode where I criticized Biden yeah. and, and Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Harris, because by every p- bit of science, they didn't need to wear a mask. If they would have said, I'm wearing a mask until herd immunity, I'm all with that. I get that. It sends a certain public message. But at the same time, we're trying to open up and we those very elected officials are saying it's okay to go back to work if you're meeting these criteria. Mm-hmm. There is no one answer. Yeah. Okay. First step. Yes, there's six percent here, there's 10%, and we could create all these things. And just for the point about schools, yeah, you know, again, we can't just put paint this all with the same brush. CDC says people the teachers should wear masks in school. Mm. So they are they are modifying. They, you have to wear one on an airplane. You have to wear one in the subway, even though you're quote lifting the mask mandate. So we have to look a little bit deeper. And I think maybe that's part of the problem was the communicate. I think the communication. Yeah. Not I think I really believe, and I know the communication rollout was yeah. a big problem. Yeah. And again, I think it would have been better to it, let it come out regionally, like let the science say this yeah and then let it fall to the states like Cuomo and and um New York and New Jersey had different and Connecticut all had different reactions to the same news Catherine um feel free to respond to anything there and in the listeners uh comment but I'd especially like to know how you're thinking about the trauma that so many people experience just by living through 2020 and how that is going to affect our willingness to emerge from COVID restrictions and maybe some of us more slowly than others. Right. So so to me, there's so many interesting things about it. So one thing I think it's important to recognize is that when we talk about culture, what we're really talking about are subcultures, right? So we could talk about, you know, the United States versus, you know, France or, you know, Ethiopia or whatever. But as Susan just noted, there are subcultures within the United States. We talk about red states and blue states, but there actually are not red states and blue states. They're basically like, you know, blue cities and suburbs and, you know, red farms, you know, and, and so on. So when, when we talk about culture, it's much more nuanced and, and culture can be, subculture can be about race. It can be about religion. It can be about, you know, whether you're college educated, you know, and, and political identification and so on. I think it's also very clear that norms got established very quickly. I remember doing a podcast probably a year ago now, and there were two guests, and and so I'm from Massachusetts, and the other one was from North Dakota, <laughs> and 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 he was like, "No one's wearing a mask." And I was like, "Everyone's wearing a mask." Like, you know, it was just such a like a funny conversation. Is he was like, "I never ever see it," and I said, "I don't, I can't think of when I've seen somebody's you know mouth, you know, because yeah. everybody that I saw um, was wearing a mask." And so we saw that get established very early. 
And once social norms get established, it actually becomes very hard to break them, very hard to change them. And and I'll say personally, I've I've done a fair amount of outdoor entertaining with friends during the pandemic, you know, couple of couple of couples. And we had a couple over for dinner maybe two or three weeks ago. We had dinner outside and the the other couple were both vaccinated, had been both vaccinated for months. My husband and I had had one shot, but not the second shot. And it started getting cold. And oh, and also I'm tested every week. So I've been negative, you know, for a year. And I, and I know that every week I can't go to my office without the test. And it started getting cold. And my husband was like, maybe we should go inside. <laughs> Did everyone awkwardly look at each other? (laughs) But we did. But it was one of these things where I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Can we go inside? And and again, it was absolutely ridiculous, right? It was ridiculous. They they, you know, I'm negative. We both had one shot. The other couple had been vaccinated, you know, for four months or whatever. Um, and still it felt risky. You know, it felt really yeah. like, you know, shall we shoot heroin sort of a, <laughs> you know, a level of a, a level of risk that, you know, that that my husband was proposing. Um and and again, I know that seems ridiculous to people in many in many parts of the country, but that's the challenge. I think once there is a norm established, it does become hard to break it, right? Yeah. This is this dovetails with another topic I want to I want to get to another piece of this conversation that I want to get to and and I've been looking into this uh this new research um that reminded me of a time last year in thinking about how different countries were organizing their responses to COVID um with varying degrees of effectiveness. Um I raised a question at, at some point to one of my colleagues about whether a core part of America's ethos, our, you know, our, our cultural emphasis on individualism might actually have played a role in handicapping our ability to respond to the specific threat profile a pandemic presents because it's one that demands strong group identification and cohesion. And this became, this becomes even more pronounced when you look at China and some other Asian countries where there was an existing cultural emphasis on the collective, right? The the well-being of the group. And of course, we know that leadership in times of crisis is an enormous factor. uh, And America infamously failed that leadership test at the very top. But there's been some recent um, fascinating work in cultural psychology, specifically by uh, Dr. Michelle Galfond, who was recently elected to the National Academy of Sciences, around tightness-looseness theory, um, which I think presents an interesting lens uh, through which to look at this question. So could you maybe summarize what Galfond is getting at, what she's bringing to the table with this work, and share your thoughts on the on, on how useful this specific lens is for thinking about the way we develop norms or break them and almost as a way to get rid of the red-blue problem, right? Get rid of the um, the Republican-Democrat problem and help us think through this from a cross-cultural psychology perspective. Yeah, I love that question. And I will say that despite the challenges of the last year teaching largely by Zoom, there has never been a year, I believe, in history in which it has been better to be teaching social psychology <laughs> across like every possible dimension. I bet. Uh, and so I'm always thankful uh, for this sor- sort of opportunity to show my students that this isn't just some kind of abstract theory you should know because it's going to be on the exam. This theory helps explain your life, mm-hmm. right? This this theory helps explain the world. So very briefly, 
the key distinction that Michelle is making is that there are certain countries that have more relaxed social norms and basically fewer rules and and restrictions. These are the so-called loose nations. And then there are other nations that are so-called tight. They have much stricter rules and restrictions and basically sort of harsher punishment, you know, discipline kind of situations. And what the research has shown, what her research in particular has shown is that loose nations have much, much more COVID. Uh, They Mm. have many more COVID cases. And they also, of course, have many more deaths from COVID. And we saw that really play out in terms of what happened in certain countries, right? So some of the Asian countries in particular, you saw restrictions in China or uh, Korea or so on, in which there was really a lockdown that that it was not just like, hey, we'd recommend that you're in states of quarantine, but, you know, really an enforcement in that sense of if you're going to leave your house, you have to text a number and you have to have permission. And we saw that in lots of different countries in which there were specific rules. You cannot go outside to exercise unless you are walking your dog, you know, or and you have to be within a mile of home or, you know, whatever. To me, though, the the key phrase that I often share with my students that I think perfectly illustrates this distinction is there's a famous saying in Japan, and it's this. The peg that stands out gets pounded down. Mm, I've heard that. <laughs> the, peg, the peg that stands out gets pounded down. Now, what's the equivalent in the United States? And basically, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm-hmm. That's right? right? I mean, that's it's the, the opposite. opposite. So it's exactly it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Right. And, and to me, that's just the useful n- mnemonic, right? That, it, that in certain places, it's be different. You yeah. know, be, be different, be unique, basically be a pain in the ass. And in other countries, it's fit mm-hmm. in, you know, don't call attention to yourself, follow the rules, right? I mean, that's the distinction. Yeah. And and to me, we've clearly seen that countries in which there are tight yeah. social norms have, have done much better. Susan, I, I'm fascinated by this and I would love to hear what you think about it. But it, one complication, obviously, is that, you know, those kinds, some kinds of uh, those those very aggressive responses like we saw in Asian countries would never fly here. Not only does the government not have those tools available at its at its disposal, but but also, you know, the people would revolt, um, I think, if it if it got too aggressive. So I, anyway, I'm interested in how you think about that. And maybe, you know, obviously the the leadership test was was failed. And if we had had a coherent and and strong unifying message from the from the top maybe things would have been a lot different but how do you think about this different lens to look at our social norms well i mean just first off the top i think it the question of leadership what surprised me so much and actually st- surprised me yet still under biden is that there was not a patriotic response hmm. to covid that i mean not telling people what the rules are and you had to do it and it's good for you and you know you're not doing it for yourself you're doing it for your neighbor but i mean a patriotic like we're going to get through yeah. this together there was no call to arms like this is it, this was something that would have united us because as a country we do believe in our individual freedoms and and different people take it into different directions of what they may be but that's what we're we're taught. We we're taught in sport. Like our country, we are special. We are unique. We handle things better than everybody else. And 
And so that kind of gets put into the fabric of who we are as a nation. But the one thing that always beat out all of that was patriotism. Mm -hmm. And it is shocking to me. I really thought that's why I thought Republicans would would go with Biden on the COVID relief bill. There's nothing more patriotic than than, than getting out of this, than keeping America. I mean, 600,000 people died. Like, we, if we, we saw that in war. Could you imagine? Look yeah. at how our country responded after 9-11. A terrorist attack, People, 3,000 people died. The number was unbelievable for us to process. And yet somehow we, we didn't process 600,000 deaths. We still haven't. And yeah. We still haven't. Yeah. But like we didn't even recognize it. It, it, it was shocking. And that, that was a result of leadership. Um, from the top. I mean, clearly that was the president's job, but it was, it's what made Andrew Cuomo at the time kind of a little celebrity um, and having his press conferences go national because he was at least talking with the people, having fun with the people, whatever you think of him. And I certainly have a lot of opinions having worked for him. Those talks definitely helped the country at a time. I'm not saying it made everyone do the right thing. But it gave us a place to go because you couldn't watch these national briefings. Yeah. And so I, I th- you know, and again, going to, to, to January 6th, how is there not a more pay? That's what I'm concerned about society like that. And that meant going through every category, whether, you know, whatever race you were, whatever religion you were, however old you were. It didn't matter. This was for America. Yeah. And somehow we've kind of divided who's for what America. And I, I hadn't given this a so, whole lot of thought, but now no, but I'm going to because no, yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, but holy you've, smokes. You've, <laughs> just, you've just said something really, Catherine, um, uh, Susan just said something really interesting and I want to take this a little bit further because as as you think about the, uh, as you described, there are microcosms of culture, right? Especially when we're talking about tight and loose cultures because both tight and loose cultures can exist in the same people across different domains. So you can have, you can have uh, a, a tight culture on one thing and a loose culture on another thing, depending on the domain. And so um, if you use patriotism as one of those domains where in America it has traditionally been a fairly a, a, a tight culture where while we have the freedom to disagree about everything under the sun, we do have – we have in the past had a very strong patriotic response um, that that unifies us in times of crisis, especially when we have a leader who who activates that domain, right, and calls us to 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 that sense of uh, of unity. In thinking about what Susan uh, just said, how should we think about the damage that has been done to that domain, that tight culture by the former guy, um, and how lasting is it going to be now when? When the then the one thing that allows us to respond collectively strongly as as a nation is now fractured almost seemingly irreparably. So it's also very sad, isn't it? And and I'm struck by what we saw tremendously change following 9-11 were also norms about travel. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you have to take off your shoes. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you actually can't go to the gate. Remember, this is gonna be this is gonna completely date me, but remember when you used to be able to go to the gate 
if you weren't oh, flying. Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Meeting your party at the gate. Yeah. <laughs> th- that's right. Yeah. That's right. You you know, you'd go hang out with your boyfriend or right. whatever, you know, waiting at the gate. Yeah. Um, And all of a sudden it was like, no, you can no longer do that. You can no longer, and you're take off your shoes and you're going to do this and whatever. And it was just like, okay. Yeah. I, that's just what we're doing. No one was like, it is my right to right. wear shoes. Right. It is my right to go to the gate. I need to see my mother, you know, whatever. It was yeah. just like, okay, this, this is a new normal and we all accepted it. Yes. And, and I think there have been other times of crisis. I'm remembering uh, after Hurricane Katrina, there was a, a big outpouring of sort of political leaders coming together, right, and doing mm-hmm. a big fundraiser. And it wasn't a, a Republican fundraiser right. or a Democratic fundraiser. It was a fundraiser because the, the sense of there were lots of people in need and former presidents combined efforts together. I'm also mindful if you think about COVID, one thing that just occurred to me with um with your question was – Trump not going to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. That's what struck me is that during times of crisis, there's mm-hmm. actually been a sense of, look, I'm I'm going to have the vaccine. Like all of these political leaders who, you know, Mike Pence, vaccine on TV, Nancy Pelosi, vaccine on TV, Biden, you know, vaccine on TV, you know, Clinton, vaccine on TV, all of these. And you know who didn't have the vaccine on TV? <sighs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the same that's person right. didn't go to the inauguration. Yeah. And so part of it is that there are these norms in which people have pulled together. COVID is not red or blue or demo, um, you know, a democrat or a republican disease. It's it, it's it, it's a really major pandemic. All it needs and is a wet pair of lungs. That's it. That's <laughs> it. And so the fact that all of a sudden something that should be a unifying thing, like a hurricane, like a terrorist attack became politicized it's it's terrifying. Yeah. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, what stories are you following that have either flown under the radar or that may influence our politics in a way we might not be expecting? Susan? So as you know, Ron, I am not one for the cryptocurrency world. <laughs> Shocking. Okay, bring but it. What did happen is that people are buying into it. We've seen that over the last year. And this really what we saw with the, the, the crash over the last few days, because the Chinese government wouldn't recognize age, um, businesses that were, were using it, makes me think I'm looking towards uh, regulations and review. This is something that too many people don't understand. And I think it's going to, now that it's affecting you know, it's mainstreamed its way into the stock market and other things. I think this is something that's going to show up pretty strong next week. And Mm. it is exactly what Joe Biden doesn't need right now. Oh my God. You think it's going to be as soon as next week? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not going to say there will be hearings next week, but I think you're going to see the calls for a, a, a significant review on regulation, just getting people in together because this is also a global issue. Mm-hmm. So the economies are, are, people are really getting unsure, especially with the talk of interest rates going up and everything. Like they don't, and too many people don't understand the influence of cryptocurrency. Right. Yeah, they don't. They don't understand the influence of it Including and they don't me, understand the, the technology just, of it. We, we <laughs> yeah, will, I mean, I read about it and I understand how it can impact things. <laughs> I, I still don't get it. <laughs> we we are we are we owe you listeners a a thorough conversation, uh, at least a primer on this, and um, stay tuned because we have one in the works. So, Catherine, what are you watching? 
Well, I, I, I want to start by saying, please don't invite me to that conversation because uh, I sort of started freaking out as, um, as, as Susan was describing because the amount that I have to share about that would, would fit in about six seconds. Um, we'll we'll so spare you. That, that would be important. Um, so what, I, what has struck me this week, and again, this, this may be fully a reflection of where I live and, and my occupation as a college professor, but what struck me is singer Demi Lovato has mm. revealed they are non-binary and are changing their pronouns. And this is a really vivid example of someone who is a, you know, celebrated pop star, you know, teenage movie star, a really popular singer, and made this announcement earlier in the week. And it struck me as this issue of transgender rights has been, of course, very, very central in the so-called Republican agenda, you know, again, um, bathroom bills and so on. And what I see is a growing awareness and acceptance of people identifying as non-binary, people identifying as transgender. And it strikes me as very similar to something that we saw play out in terms of GLBTQ plus, you know, rights over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. I tell a story at the end of my book about my daughter, Caroline, who was born on May 17th, 2004. And that is a really important date in our nation's history. I'm not sure if anyone listening knows why, not because of her birth, but May 17, 2004 was the date in which Massachusetts, where she was born, became the first state to legalize gay marriage. Mm. So it was the date of her birth and and it was in Massachusetts. And I remember being in the car with her in June of 2015. We were driving when the Supreme Court decision came down legalizing gay marriage across the country. And I turned to Caroline and I just said, wow, I, I just can't believe, you know, the day you were born, you know, no states had legalized gay marriage. And 11 years later, it's the country. It just, yeah. it seemed amazing. And Caroline looked up at me and goes, yes, what took so long? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, Indeed. that is not long. Yeah. And so to me, what what's actually was so exciting about Demi Lovato's announcement is that it's just a drip, drip, drip of what we are going to see, I think, in terms of acceptance of they, them pronouns, uh, which which Demi Lovato is now using. And, and it struck me as really sort of a positive example of a role model for teens, you know, for young adults, you know, somebody who they had grown up idolizing. I totally agree. I was going to mention this, and so I'm so glad. I'm so you oh, did sorry, it. No, 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 no. No, you sorry. didn't at all. As a matter of fact, you did it better than I could have. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, that look ahead in particular, that was terrific. Before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet? And also, by the way, it was a great, uh, it was a great um, segue to our Politicology Plus segment, which we'll get to in just a minute. But for everybody else, before I let you go, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, sorry, I should have done sorry, that. Sorry, go, go ahead. Let's do that again. I was, let I was me try that again. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> Catherine, before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet? I am on Instagram at Sanderson Speaking, and I am on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks. Beautiful. Susan? I'm on Twitter at Del Percio S. Excellent. And I'm at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. It takes a lot of work and a lot of people to produce Politicology, so if you enjoyed this episode, please pitch in by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts, by sharing this episode, and especially by contributing at politicology.com slash donate. 
And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Politicology Pod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.